Well, good to have you guys here tonight. Uh, Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Has anyone found glasses? Lola lost her glasses. She's... Okay, he's going to... He's in Hawaii. And he's going to get your glasses so you can see again. Okay. If someone after our time tonight can escort Lola, make sure she makes it back to her car. Doesn't get in the wrong car. (laughs) Well, we're continuing in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 38 and go through. In review, remember last week we had a a conflicting confrontation with Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus had basically rubbed them the wrong way by healing on the Sabbath. He, He wasn't keeping with their... Religious traditions, darn him. He, he seemed to think that people were more important than religious traditions, and by doing that, he was usurping their authority. They didn't like that. They were plotting to kill him, and there he goes and heals on the Sabbath. And what do you do when someone who you're trying to kill heals people? you got to do something. So they say it's by Beelzebub, the, the chief of demons, that he's doing these miracles. And Jesus said, that's stupid. Paraphrased, but basically said, that doesn't make sense. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. And if I'm doing this by the prince of demons, who do your prophets do it by? It makes no sense at all. But if I do it by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is here among you. And he went through and he gave them an example of the strong man. We talked about that. We, we went a little bit into that spiritual element, speaking of some things last year. But we also talked about this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And, and we spoke about how Jesus is really still connected to what he was talking about with the Pharisees, attributing the work of God to demons, resisting what the Spirit of God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ, is resisting what God is doing. And you can't go against God and think that it's okay. It's not. And so now we continue in verse 38, and it says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, wait a minute. Let's just stop there. We want to see a sign from you. What, the withered hand guy on the Sabbath wasn't good enough for you? That That's not the sign you wanted? You know, it, it's kind of funny because... They start wanting these things, you know, the, the demon guy who got delivered, that's not good enough for you. And I wonder sometimes, what is good enough for people who have this kind of mindset? And, and maybe not just these kind of people who are opposed. Maybe we find ourselves coming into a place where we put God kind of on the witness stand and say, God, if you want me to really believe or live for you, do this for me. Now, we don't say that out loud. But if you're good, you can do it subconsciously and keep yourself kind of in this place of wondering. And it might go something like this. God, if, if I get that job, I promise I'll live for you. God, if I get that girl... 
I'll give you the rest of my life for that boy. Or if I get the winning numbers to the lotto, I promise I'll give you 10%. God, just do this for me, and then I'll do this for you. And we kind of put God in this place where I'm not going to be fully committed to you unless you do this for me. And I think that's a dangerous place to be, where we are putting God and making him subject to us. I'll believe you, I'll serve you, I'll do these things if you prove yourself to me. There, there's a, a type of arrogance that is in that that I think is dangerous. It, it comes from this kind of pride of you owe me because look who I am. You owe me because whatever the reason is. We need to be careful we don't go down that path mentally because that's kind of where the Pharisees are. They're putting Jesus on the stand saying, okay, we want to see a sign from you. Prove to us. We want a magic genie God who we can rub the lamp and he's going to perform for us the way we want. And Jesus responds to them. Verse 39, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus tells them that they're wicked. And he says that it's an adulterous generation that asks for a sign. Now, why did he tell them this? Why did he tell them that they were wicked and link it to this spiritual adultery? The reason he did is because Jesus is God's sign. They wanted a sign, but the, the very sign of God was right before them. And if you want another sign other than the sign that God is giving, what you're wanting is something other than God. You're not wanting to be faithful to God who is giving you this. You want something else. You're being unfaithful to God and the sign he is given. That's the idea of this adulterous generation. He's talking about a spiritual adultery of not wanting or wanting something other than what God is giving. And you see, Jesus was the sign from God. And they didn't want that. They wanted something other than that. And he goes on and he gives this comparison. He is there rejecting who he is and they're wanting something else to put their faith in it. And we know from the previous chapters what they wanted is they wanted to be able to have the superiority 
for the people. They wanted the precedence in the people's mind, and Jesus was taking that away. And so essentially what they were fighting against was God doing a work and that work not being the work that they wanted because it was taking away their status. And so that's what they're against. And so there is unfaithfulness. There is wickedness that's taking place there. And then he gives us the Jonah comparison. He told them that it's like what happened to Jonah. Now, think about Jonah. I mean, you guys know the story of Jonah. Jonah was called to go to the wicked city of Nineveh. He went the other way. He went towards Tarsus. He didn't want to go. God said, no, I think you should go. And so there was a big storm, got thrown overboard. There was a great fish. All these things happened. Remember, God never violated Jonah's free will. He just made him willing to go. Jonah gets vomited up on the shore, walks to Nineveh. And for three days, Jonah walks through the city, telling them, repent or be destroyed. Jesus has been with them now for three years, preaching, teaching, and performing miracles. Jonah had three days. Jesus had three years. Jonah went to Syrian non-believing nation. Those who would not be expected to respond did. Jesus comes to the people of Israel, those who were chosen by God, who were supposed to be looking for the Messiah, and they don't respond. Jonah was just a man. Jesus comes again preaching, performing miracles as the Son of God. They listen to Jonah. They're not listening to Jesus. Jonah goes as a prophet. Jesus is as the Messiah, the expected, the anointed one. Jonah had no miracles. Jonah had no, nothing great, except he probably looks strange having been in a fish for three days. I mean, all he does is go through, repent or die, walks through the city all the way through. Does nothing. Jesus performed many miracles. Jonah spent three days alive in a whale. Jesus was three days dead in a tomb and came back to life. And think about it. Jonah preached nothing but the wrath of God. There was no good news at all. Jesus comes preaching, of course, a strong warning, but also preaches salvation and grace. They listened to Jonah. But one greater than Jonah is here doing more than Jonah did, and they don't believe it. And so Jesus says that Jonah is going to be up on the witness stand against you and all the people of Nineveh because they heard his message and repented. You heard a message of one greater, and you did nothing. And so there's this challenge, this Massive contrast, leaning heavy in Jesus' favor. And the people of Nineveh, with so much less revealed to them, 
so much less insight and understanding, still repented. Which means that they turned from their ways and turned to God and lived differently. Understanding that that's what repenting means because that's kind of what Jesus is getting to here. It's changing your life's direction. And they didn't do it, even though these people of Nineveh did. And then he goes on and he says that this Ethiopian queen who traveled long distances to hear the wisdom of Solomon because she wanted to gain something. She traveled, she sought after and heard the wisdom of Solomon. And he's saying that someone greater than Solomon is here, that the very wisdom of God in the person of Jesus was with them for three years and they didn't listen. It's interesting how we can often talk about going to church or growing up in church as being a hindrance. You know, I grew up in church and, you know, I just have problems with church because, man, the people just weren't loving. I got mistreated. And this idea of, you know, the church has hurt me and they've done these things. And, yeah, the church has hurt a lot of people. You go to church and you expect these people to be like Jesus and you find out that they're actually like you. And we actually are all in the same boat. And so we get let down and we get hurt. And then we get bitter. But we are still responsible for the truth that we hear. And it's kind of sad to hear people who say, well, yeah, I grew up in the church, and so they've got this chip on their shoulder. But you see, you're not turning to the church for your salvation. You're, you're turning to Jesus. You're, you're not giving your life to this church denomination, whatever. You're giving your life to this person, Jesus. He's the one who requires us to listen. He is the wisdom of God. He is the one who is greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. He is the one that we need to key on. And we need to be careful that we don't make excuses, that we don't get upset because of the wrong that was done to us. And so now what we think is it's okay to disregard what Jesus has said, and that's not okay. And I just find that happening a lot, and it's tragic, it's sad, that automatically thinks, oh, someone, the church has let me down, so I've got a, a get out of church free card, you know, get out of having to listen to Jesus free. It doesn't work that way, because there's going to always be those kinds of incidences and tragedies on that final day of judgment, I really don't think we're going to get to point fingers or to blame anyone. We're each going to be responsible for the revelation that we've been given and what we did with that revelation. We won't be able to stand before God and say, well, no, the reason I didn't want to live for you and live for me instead is because remember, you know, Jimmy over there at the first, you know, church of so-and-so, 
Uh, he treated me bad. Yeah, I took my car to him to get it fixed, and he ripped me off. It cost me $300 more. So I said, forget you after that. You see, what we're doing is saying, show me a sign. Do this for me, God, and I'll act this way for you. Oh, you didn't do this for me? Okay, forget you. Now, we're not saying it out loud, but that's the attitude that comes in there. That's kind of the posture that we take. And again, it's an arrogant and prideful posture. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in these Pharisees, is their posture of pride. And we need to be careful that doesn't take place in us, because we can be very tricky with our pride. We can be very cunning in our self-righteousness. But ultimately, we have to listen to the voice of Jesus. When we stand before him, we have to answer, even as the Pharisees did, with what happened. I do believe what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said that God knows our situation and he will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. But we still are responsible for what he, God, gives us. And so we need to remember that. And so Jesus kind of blasts them here. He lets them know that they're, he doesn't perform for them. He doesn't pull a rabbit out of his hat. He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't do something that they want to see. He doesn't do a magic trick. He says, no, a wicked and adulterous generation seek a sign. You've already had your signs. It's been talked about before. He goes on and he continues in verse 43, and he gives this strange illustration. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, that's just kind of creepy right there. Um, It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of the person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation thought last week was creepy. Okay. I want to keep context here in this so that we don't go too far off. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about their disbelief, their pride. They're wanting God to perform for them when God has given them Jesus himself, and that's not enough. What Jesus seems to be saying here is to believe in God without repentance and a commitment to follow him or to follow Christ will ruin your life. To believe in God means to, you know, get rid of that evil spirit. I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. But if now I don't turn to God or have a commitment to follow God, my belief is shallow and is hollow. You find freedom with belief, but if you don't fill this house with the decision to follow, it's going to end bad. And it's the illustration that he gives. I had read, one person said that the heart of a person is a house that has to be filled. What is our house filled with? And it seems that Jesus is 
connecting this to the fact that here you are believing in God in your mind, but not believing or living or turning to God in your heart. And so your condition is actually worse. Even though they knew the law, even though they knew the scriptures, they believed all those things, yet they did not repent, they did not commit themselves to Christ, and now they're wanting to murder Jesus. You see, they are worse than they were beforehand. I mean, it takes a lot to want to kill someone. I mean, and want to follow through, I should say that. We might have, anyway. You know, a lot of us can get upset, but to actually plot to kill someone, to make steps to see this happen, something's going on, something evil's taking place. And this is from people who believe. See, I believe Jesus is talking specifically about these Pharisees. Their condition is now worse because they believe, but we're not committed, we're not repentive. The heart of a person is a house that has to be filled, and we will fill it with something or someone. And this house has to be filled with the Spirit of God. That's what it means to follow after him, to commit our lives to him. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. One of, I think, the greatest dangers for us as people who follow after Jesus is to become religious and not have lives that live what we believe. And we can become just like Pharisees. We know scripture. We have our traditions. But we haven't repented, turned our lives towards God and allowing God to shape us. We'll shape our own lives and they'll look like good lives. You know, we help old ladies across the street. We do all those things that get recognition or whatever from people. We do things that look good but our lives are not given to God. They're still under our control. They're still filled with pride, wanting recognition from men, those kinds of things. They're not being molded and shaped by God. And and Paul talks about this filling of the Spirit in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 18. And he gives us this great picture. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when a person is drunk, being drunk has a major influence on what you think, say, or do, right? Everyone can agree or seen that happen, maybe been part of that. If you're intoxicated, you're severely drunk, it controls you. You're under its influence. And so Paul's saying, don't be drunk with wine where now the alcohol has influence of you. It's basically going to affect your life, the things that you do, the things that you say, the way that you think. 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit, and it will do the same thing. It will affect the way you think. It'll affect the things you do. It will affect what you say. It will start to produce in your life. And he talks about the things that it starts to produce. You'll start speaking with psalms, hymns, making music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for Jesus Christ. This, this is the production of being filled with the Spirit. And then it even goes further. Paul talks about being mutually submitted to one another, that it influences our relationships. He talks about husbands, wives, parents, children, our workplace. It has influence on our life. And the idea, the phrase being filled with the Spirit is an imperative. It means a continual process. It's not be filled with the Spirit one time. It's be being filled. Be constantly under the influence of the Spirit so that it's a continual process. It's a continual progression. It has continual reaches throughout your life. It now emanates from who you are, that you are controlled by the Spirit. It produces songs in your hearts, thanksgiving. It affects your relationship as husband, wife, parents, children, workplace. It has this kind of effect on our lives. And it's supposed to. And what will stop that from happening is arrogance and pride, like what was exhibited by the Pharisees. This will keep the spirit at bay, where we can believe, but the house is empty. And then it gets bad. And then it gets ugly. Because nothing is more harmful than a person who knows the right things but doesn't believe them. A good person or a person who holds a good position but has a wicked heart is dangerous. A person who is in the pulpit but the spirit is not occupying the home can do a lot of damage, a whole lot of damage. We see this, the abuses. I don't know if you guys read recently, there's a big, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, TBN, Paul and Jan Crouch. They're being sued by one of their family members because they were accused of basically taking $50 million and using it for like a doghouse that cost $100,000 and all kinds of stuff like that. TBN, you know them. Now, part of me just says, Are you, is anyone surprised? You know, is anyone surprised here? Any lady who's got purple hair that's, you know, that high, just, <laughs> you gotta suspect something. This isn't right, this isn't normal. Something's going on here that's living this kind of strange life. What, what bothers me is how is it that so many people outside Christendom can look at these people and say, they're charlatans, and so many people inside the church give them money. That's what bothers me. That's what boggles my mind. But here we see people who have the right information 
able to cause a lot of damage. Now, I don't know Paul, I don't know Jan Crouch, and I'm good with that. <laughs> I just see these things happening, and I, I feel like I could have said, told you so. This isn't a surprise to me. But this kind of charismatic, I know all this stuff, doesn't mean a hill of beans. It's who's filling the house. Who is occupying that home? Because if it's not the Spirit of God, then it's worse. It's a lot worse. And I believe, again, that's what Jesus is talking about. You know, throughout Matthew's Gospel, we've seen Jesus talk about life without repentance and what it looks like. This believing but not living. Chapter 5, he talked about salt. What good is salt if it loses its saltiness? And think about it. What would you do with a pile of white granules? If it doesn't have salt flavor to it, it's... What do you do with it? It's useless. That's a life that knows but doesn't follow. In chapter 18, he talks about the person who's forgiven but refuses to forgive others. And how judgment is going to fall on that person. You forget, you were forgiven, but you refuse to forgive others. You have a knowledge, but you're not living out that knowledge. In chapter 22, Matthew's Gospel, he talks about going to a wedding, but not being dressed properly. It's like someone invites you to a wedding, and you show up in your pajamas. Hey, I'm here. It's like, dude, this is a wedding. What are you doing? Yeah, that suit was real uncomfortable. I like my PJs. You're not wearing what's appropriate. You're not clothed properly. Your house isn't occupied. There's a disconnect from what you believe and who you are. And it's dangerous. And Matthew's gospel talks about that. All, all these pictures of belief without repentance or submission to God... You need to be certain that the only person who can save you is Jesus. But we should live working this out in our relationship. Even as Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It wasn't, oh no, am I saved? Oh no, I I wonder if I did enough today. It's being involved and allowing the relationship to be occupying your time. I think God has given us relationships to help us understand our relationship with him. Because you can't have a good relationship if you don't invest in it. It just doesn't work that way. The only way my wife and I are going to have a good relationship is if there's good communication, if there's healthy interaction, if there's discourse, if we talk about the things that are problems, if we discuss the areas in our life that are hard to, to wrestle with, when we have to go through those times together, the financial times, problems with kids, all those things, if we don't engage ourselves in those things, we're not going to have a good relationship. There's no shortcut. I can't, okay, hon, every morning I say I love you, I give you a kiss, 
I, I bring the check home every night. I vacuum or do, do these chores. Whatever it is I do, that's enough. Is that enough? And what list do you make that says it's enough? Well, it could change next week. What happens if my wife gets sick and is in the hospital? Now what does that love look like? Now what does that relationship look like? Now it looks like me going to the hospital, taking care of more, stepping up and getting involved a little bit deeper, having to involve myself with those issues. Well, the same thing's true with our relationship with God. Sometimes God exposes areas in our lives, pride, and we have to deal with it. That's working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's dealing with these things in this relationship that we have with God. Sometimes I see that I'm not devoted like I need to be. Or maybe I'm pursuing wrong things or something else in a wrong way or too much. And the relationship with God, it might not always be wrong, but maybe it is right now, and I have to deal with it. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about the relationship. And we cannot have a relationship if pride is blocking us and stopping us from living that way. Jesus goes on and he continues. Finish the chapter here. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, hey, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whosoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In the midst of this warning, Jesus creates this new community. He creates this new community based on a relationship, the relationship that takes place with those who do the will of his father. It's not based on their national heritage. You're of Jewish descent, therefore, you're my brother. It's not based on physical relations. You're my brother physically by natural means my birth mother, it's based on the relationship that we have doing the will of God. And what's amazing about this is it now brings us into this family. Have you ever been a part of a family, maybe when you were a kid, and your neighbor, his parents always went to the river, and they had the speedboat, and they had the jet skis, and, and you didn't have that. And they invite you one summer, and you get to go, you know, with Johnny, and man, you have the best time that week. You're skiing, you're jet skiing, and you're thinking, this is great. And you think, I wish I could be a part of this family, because every year they go to the, the river, and they have all these toys. And you have this envy for this family in that regard, you know, just wanting to be a part of that or his drive, drive, his dad drives a Corvette and you wish, wish he was my dad so that when I'm 16, I can drive that car. You know, you have this desire to be a part of a family or you see maybe you were in a family that was broken, didn't have a mother and father and you see a family that has a stable home. And you think, I'd like a home like that. You have this envying, wanting to be a part of something like that. 
And here we have opportunity to be a part of this family of God. And it, we don't have to be born into it. We don't have to have some kind of heritage. We don't have to fill those requirements. All we have to do is turn to God. All we have to do is do the will of God. And now we're in this family, Jesus's family. And what a great thing that is. It's kind of interesting, the things that happen in families, how they can get a little bit, even in this TBN, it's someone in the family who turned them in, you know, and it's like, whoa. They thought family could keep them safe, and it didn't. But this family is safe. You know, this place of faith in Christ fills the new home with God's Spirit, doing the will of God, walking humbly with Him, living our lives in submission to Him. It's interesting, in Mark's Gospel, this account, it says that his family thought that Jesus had lost his mind. Isn't that amazing? They thought, oh, Jesus, he's gone crazy. He's, he's going to get himself killed. And they were trying to intervene, and Jesus says, no, you don't understand. That's not your job. The family is those who do the will of God. And we all want to know what the will of God is, and it's not difficult. It's not something that we have to, you know, it's not like that one Easter egg that has the money in it. And we have to find the one Easter egg, because that's the will of God. I mean, it says in the scripture, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the will of God. Doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. That's the will of God. And that's what we want to be a part of. That's what we want to see happen. Those are the things that we desire to be a part of our lives so that we can be a part of this family and not fall into the same pit that the Pharisees fell in. Don't want to be on that side of the conversation. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray that our time together sparked questions, uh, sparked desire to learn and, and find out more and to, to live fully close to you. God, to allow your work to be a constant filling in our lives. And Lord, I'm so thankful that you are patient, that you are long-suffering, that you are merciful. I am so thankful that even these scriptures that are kind of hard and seem so uh, rough, God, are there for a purpose. They're there to push us out of that dangerous place. They're there to bring the caution to our hearts and our minds, to ask the question, is that me? Am I that person? Am I like that? To work out our salvation with fear and trembling, understanding that you are love and you cast out all fear. The closer we get to you, God, the less we have to be afraid of. And that is our desire. And so I pray that you would work that in each of us tonight and today or the next day 
and the weeks to come, that there would be a growth in our relationship with you and that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through the scripture, through one another. Father, that your Holy Spirit would continue to occupy our lives for your glory. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.